We're continuing our discussion of the canonization of the Bible. Last week, we discussed the uh, the, na- the various n- uh, names that are given to the Scripture, um, and whether they apply to the whole Tanakh or just to the Nevi'im or just to the Nevi'im and Ketuvim. Uh, we also discussed how many books there are in the Bible, um, a little bit about the order of the books, the sequence of canonization, how the Ketuvim came last. Uh, so now we're up to um, question of chronology. When did all this happen? So if we go to Ben Sira, who was writing around the year 200 before the Common Era, he knows about the Torah, the Prophets, and the other writings. But the term that he uses for the other writings is not what we say as Ketuvim. Rather, Ketuvim, in, translated into English, is uppercase W, writings. Here there's no uppercase W. It's not a title, it's just there are other books. But he doesn't know a title for them because the third section has not been uh, put into final form. He, he knows about the Psalms, Proverbs, and Eov. He doesn't know about Ecclesiastes, which is the irony that his book is Ecclesiasticus. And it's similar to Ecclesiastes, but he doesn't know anything about Ecclesiastes. He doesn't cite it. Ecclesiastes could be written later. So Ecclesiastes could have been written later. It's attributed to Solomon, and the traditionalists will say that Shlomo Melech is the author because it says uh, the, the name, but um, it could be that it was written later. Now, Second Maccabees, which is written roughly around the year 90, or maybe 100 to 90 BCE, so 100 years after Ben Sira, mentions Nehemiah, but not Ezra, in the heroes of the, uh, of the biblical period. Whereas in the rabbinic writings, who's more important, Ezra or Nehemiah? Ezra is much more important. He's seen as the, the giver of Torah, like on par with Moshe Rabbeinu. Also, that is a major question in the, in the literature. We don't know. It never says that he was. It never says Ezra was Kohen Gadol. He was a, no, he was a powerful figure with the backing of the government. He was a political figure. He was a really religio-political figure, but it never says he was Kohen Gadol. All right, now, 2 Maccabees knows of, quote-unquote... Well, around his time, there was a change of the font. Whether it was him, we don't know, but it could have been him. The Talmud describes it to him. That's a big thing as you can do. Okay, so 2 Maccabees knows about those of David. Quote-unquote, those of David. What, what are those of David? Psalms. The Psalms, correct. Um, Philo, who's writing in the, in the 30s and 40s of the Common Era, knows about the law, the prophet, the Psalms, and other books. So notice the Psalms and other books, which are the stuff that, that make up our Ketuvim, are not identified by a single name, but as Psalms and other books. Uh, Luke, chapter 11, shows an awareness all the way of, of the Chronicles. So, Chronicles, which is arguably the last of all the books of the Bible, um, is part of the, the recognized sacred writings by the time of the first century uh, synoptic gospels are being written. So that's just to give you an idea of, of the big authors that are out there be in the Jewish or Judeo-Christian world. What were they aware of in the late Second Temple uh, period? Now, when was the prophetic canon closed? That's the big question. So it was open in the mid-fifth century. How do we know that the prophetic canon was still open in the mid-fifth century? Because what happened between the Jews and the Samaritans in the mid-fifth century? Who arrived on the scene in Judea uh, to improve the situation in the mid-fifth century? We just mentioned him. Ezra. Uh, his colleague, <laughs> Nehemiah. Nehemiah comes with the power of the Persian government to impose rules on society. Now, one of his m- most important things is to build a wall around the city of Jerusalem to uh, improve its defenses and to uh, bolster the, uh, the temple. Well, what do the Samaritans wish to do uh, with respect to the temple at first? At first, they request permission to collaborate with the Jews to help in building the temple. What was the reaction of the, Jude- of the Judean leadership? Goodbye. It's not for you and us to cooperate. This is our project, not your project. So the the fissure between Jews and Samaritans is getting very serious in the mid-5th century BC. And at that time, whatever was the Jewish Bible 
would have also been the Samaritan Bible. But what is the Samaritan Bible? The five books and limited portions of the book of Joshua. So basically, the Nevi'im are either unknown to them or were not yet accepted as sacred writings. Now who were they to accept or not accept? I mean, what were they? I mean, they were, were, they, were they ethically, biologically Jews? Or well, many of, many of them were descendants of the ancient Israelites of the north. But my point here is simply this. If the, if the religious divide between Jews and Samaritans happens at a certain time, and we know that up until that time the Samaritans were basically adherents of the faith, then whatever they have as sacred in their writings would be what was sacred at that time, and whatever we have that they don't have would have been canonized afterward, subsequently. Okay, so the, the prophetic canon, on this logic... Uh, becomes a part of you know uh, uh, of the official religion sometime between uh, the early fifth century and the year two hundred, because we know that Ben Sira has all these mat- the same materials that we have today. Uh, the guess is that the the prophetic canon was closed sometime at the dawn of the Seleucid era, which is when. Roughly the year 313, 313 before, yeah. 330, well, Alexander is 332, and the Seleucid era is 313 before the Common Era. Why the suggestion that uh, at, the begin- at the dawn of the Seleucid era we closed the, the prophetic canon? So part of it has to do with the idea that prophecy no longer abounds in Israel, that we have entered a new phase in communion with God, that it's no longer direct through this, uh, this you know, human being, a person who has connection, direct revelation, <coughs> albeit an opaque one, from the, uh, from the Almighty, but rather we know God through the study of the older writings, the sage. The sage replaces the prophet. So that happens roughly around the beginning of the Seleucid period. Um, so that means there's a 500-year gap between the canonization of the Christian books uh-huh. and, the, and the Jewish books? Well, of the Jewish prophetic books, the Jewish writings, the Ketuvim will happen much later. But the the, oh, Nevi'im, the, Nevi'im. the Nevi'im are sealed shut sometime between 450 and 200, but the guess is sometime around 300 to 315. Okay. Now, uh, the, the Nevi'im were definitely, absolutely sealed before the year 165 BCE, because Daniel is in the Ketuvim. Actually, we spoke about this a year or two ago when we discussed Hanukkah. Remember how I said that um, the story of Hanukkah really is in the Bible, but only the, the bad parts, not the happy ending? So the, the sad persecution is predicted in the so-called prophecies of Daniel except that the scholars all say that the prophecies of Daniel aren't prophecies. They're writing after the fact, but in the mouth of a, of a fictional character who is being portrayed as a prophet in the, in the Babylonian captivity. So the fact that the book of Daniel knows all the sad parts of the persecution, but doesn't know about the Hasmonean victory and the salvation and the rededication of the temple, means that it had to have been written when? Before the year 165. Okay? But Daniel was put in the Ketuvim, despite the fact that it looks on paper, when you read it plainly, even if you believe it as prophecy, so it's prophecy, it should be in the Nevi'im. The fact that it's in the Ketuvim means the Nevi'im was closed, sealed shut, you can't put anything new in it. That's a pretty, very compelling and convincing proof. Okay. Um, now the, uh, Judah, uh, Judah Maccabee, according to, to Second Maccabees, collected various writings after the Greek persecution. So, Yeshomrim, there are those who will say that the Ketuvim was sealed shut sometime early in the Maccabean period. Why was Judah Maccabee busy collecting writings after the persecutions of Antiochus? Why? What is, what is one of the five things we say about the 17th of Tammuz? That they burned a Torah scroll. If you go to the book of Maccabees, what does it say they did to the Torah scrolls? They either burned them or tore them to shreds. So since there was a decline in the, in the raw number of sacred scrolls floating around the countryside, it was the task of the, of the Judaic leadership, and in this case it was military leadership, it wasn't even religious leadership, to assemble as many sacred writings as possible, 
just the, the, the copies of the scrolls, see what we have, and make a decision about what's holy. So you could argue that the Ketuvim was canonized around that time. Uh, Leopold Zunz, who was one of the great early uh, scholars of the science of Judaism, says that between the year 160 and the year 105, um, decisions were made about admission into the canon for all three parts, for Tonavim Ketuvim. So, so by whom? Well, Jude, Jude, Judah Maccabee dies in 160. Who's in charge from 160 to 105? Jonathan, Simon, and then Simon's son, John Hyrcanus. So during the reign of those three Hasmonean figures, uh, they are religious and political figures in the sense that they hold office of either ethnarch or later king and that of high priest. So who, uh, and presumably they also hold some kind of sway over the Sanhedrin. Some authoritative body is deciding on admission of books into the canon. However, however, even though something was admitted, it doesn't mean that there couldn't be further questioning of why this book is where it is. And so the ratification of those decisions is delayed until the Council of Yavna, of Jamnia, between the years 90 and 110, because we do find that the Tanaim, the early Tanaim, are still debating the sacred character of certain books, what we call the non-legomena, fancy Latin term. Those books about whom there are questions whether it is logos, whether it is law. Or rather, it's in the Bible. Okay. Um, now, the, in the rabbinic tradition, all holy writings are written by prophets. Are written by prophets. So, what did this mean uh, with respect to the chronology of canonization according to you know, Orthodox historiography, and for that matter, the status of certain people as prophets? So the order of the book should be the order of the prophet's lives. Well, it should be, that's true. Uh, and f- for the most part, it is, at least in the Nevi'im, uh, well, the big prophets, uh, but not the case for the, the 12 minor prophets, except the last three are objectively the last three. Uh, no, what, what, I, what I'm getting at here is, if all the sacred writings had to be written by prophets, it means that certain people who, according to the Bible, plain reading, never experienced prophecy, are nonetheless regarded as Nevi'im. Like whom? Give me an example. Who wrote a couple of books of the Bible, according to the tradition? Shlomo. Shlomo. Was Shlomo a Navi? According to the, to the to plain reading of the Tanakh? No. Was King David a Navi? Not according to the plain reading of the Bible. So we so we say in the rabbinic tradition that there were memchet neviim v'zayin neviot, forty eight prophets and seven prophetesses. Might have added a few s's at the end. Um, but we also say that there were actually keflaim kiyotzim double the number of people who left Egypt. That there were six hundred thousand people who left Egypt and that there were 1.2 million prophets, except that the, the words of the vast bulk of those prophets were not recorded for posterity because they only had messages that were relevant for themselves, and only Nevoah Dorot, those things which are needed for subsequent generations, were written down and preserved long term. So that's why whatever we have in the Tanakh must be of significance to us. It's Dorot. It's for all generations. Okay. So that's with respect to who was a prophet. We add people who, by the plain reading, really shouldn't have been on the list. But also... If we're going to say that all the books were written by prophets, it also means that, we, that the tradition denies categorically that certain books of the Ketuvim were written late in the Second Temple period, or even middle Second Temple period, that after Haggai, Zechariah, and Malachi, there's nothing. Now, that's problematic in and of itself, because Ezra and Nehemiah post-date them, but you could argue, well, if we use the, the rabbinic chronology of the Seder Olam, that the Persian period was only 52 years, so then we could truncate the whole business, and the last of the prophets were part of the Anshe Knesset Sagdola, were contemporaries with Ezra and Nehemiah. Now, we know historically that isn't true, but you could say it, because that's the, that's the official chronology. Uh, so that would mean, if everything had to be written by a prophet... You can't then, within the tradition, claim that books were written in the second century of the of BCE, like we say about Ecclesiastes that it was written in the in, in the, the latter Greek period, or for that matter, to say that even Divrei Hayamim was written in the fourth century BCE, a hundred years after Ezra. 
all, all the basic staples of the critical theory of the Ketuvim have to be rejected by the traditionalist on the theory that every book of the Bible was written by a Navi. So that's the, the wide chasm between, if you follow the, the Talmudic understanding and the, and the critical theory. Okay. Now, Ben Sira is the major topic for tonight, was excluded from the Bible. Why was it excluded from the Bible? Answer, because of this very point we're discussing. Every book of the Bible had to be written by a prophet. But prophecy comes to an end with Chagai Zechariah Malachi. Wherever, whenever they might have lived, whether you want to follow the, 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 the secular his- chronology or, the, or the, the traditional chronology. But even according to the traditional one, that's in the middle of 4th century BCE. When does Ben Sira live? In the year 200. He's too late in the game. So he's out. Gone goodbye. But, what? but it's unfair. Because there were other books of the Bible that basically were written around the same time as Ben Sira that got in, like Book of Daniel. So why was Daniel in and Ben Sira out? Answer is very simple. Pseudopigraphic works that claim to have been written by a hero from a thousand years earlier get in. Because the traditionalist will say, yeah, it really was written by that guy a thousand years ago. Whereas a book that says was written by me, I'm the author, and I live today. Well, you're too late in the game, you're out. So Ben Sira openly admits that he's the author of his own book, and everyone knows when he lives, and he says he's a contemporary of Shimon Atzadik, the second Shimon Atzadik, so rough, roughly around the year 200. He can't be incorporated because a generation or two later, everyone's going to know, well, this guy lived two generations ago, prophecy was long over. Whereas pseudepigraphic works could be ascribed to a much earlier time period, and no one has to be the wiser, ah, we'll let him in. That's, that, that's what happened. Yeah. Ben Sira, uh, he, he's part of the Apocrypha? Yes. All right, so he got into the Septuagint. Yes. So how did he get in there? Uh, a- answer is that Ben Sira was widely recognized as, a, as an important book. And even in the Talmud, we're going to see in a second, it was widely respected. But it was kept out of the Bible for various reasons. And having been kept out, it was trashed by certain Tanaim as a means of reducing its stature and standing within the Jewish community because it really did have pretty high standing as a book of, of, of great wisdom. So let's now go to the sources and find out. But it couldn't have been a chronological reason solely for that. For example, I remember when we were talking about uh-huh. the Maccabees, yeah. Maccabees 1 was claimed that there was a denial of Olam Haba. And yes. that was after 200. So it was okay. considered to be okay. in... Ex- so, it was okay. non- so, so, so it's not just about whether it was written by a prophet and, and if it's you know, post-prophecy, it's out. There are also theological issues. Yes, like a book of Maccabees... Like Maccabees 1 could not possibly have gotten into the Hebrew Bible as, as accepted by the rabbis because the theology of Maccabees 1 is just totally at odds with the rabbis. Whereas Maccabees 2... Uh, is more in line with rabbinic thinking with the afterlife. So yes, it, it, there's chronology as a factor and substance as a factor. And we shall see that so, in the Talmud, them making the decision about Ben Sira on the basis of substance, not just on the basis of was it prophetic in Ruach HaKodesh or not. That substance will be an issue. Okay, so just uh, one, one line about the canonization of the Torah, which might seem like an absurd point. The canonization of the Torah? You know, God gives the Torah in Mount Sinai. We don't need a canonization of the Torah. Well, no, it, it's still important because in first temple times, did the Jews observe the Torah? Did the Jews read the Torah? Did the Jews know the Torah? For the most part, no. In the, in the uh, Babylonian captivity, were they so devotedly attached to Torah? Well, maybe some people were devoted to not worshipping idols, like the stories about not bowing down to the statue of Nebuchadnezzar. But for the most part, we don't see a, a pious, observant community of Torah, even in the, in the Chutzlaretz. Where do we see observance of Torah? At the conclave established by Ezra and Nehemiah, where they agreed to abide by the Torah. So the, the canonization of the five books of Moses appears in Nehemiah chapter 10, verse 30. What does it say? In the deal that was struck 
between um, Ezra and the populace. It says, Machazikim alachehem adirehem, ubaim We enter into a solemn oath and covenant. Lalechet betorata Elohim, to follow the Torah of God. Asher netanab yad Moshe evet ha-Elohim. It was given to, by the hand of Moses, the servant of God. Lishmor v'lasot t'klomitzot Hashem Adonenu, umishpatav v'chukav, to follow all the ordinances of Hashem. So, this is the canonization of the five books of Moses, Nehemiah 10.30, where there is a public acceptance, a solemn acceptance, to adhere to what is known as the Torah of God, given by the hand of Moses. In rabbinic literature, we do find a similar idea uh, in reference to a line in the book of Esther. And what is that? The Jews accepted upon themselves uh, willingly in the days of Achashverosh and Mordechai that which was accepted only grudgingly in the days of Moses. So, uh, put aside any, that's only of homiletic value, the point is in, in the real world there was a deal struck that you had to keep by the, the Torah of Moses. And, and that's now the constitution of society. If you break the rules, you go to jail, you get punished. Okay? Now, let's go to. Tosefta Yadayim, which is going to tell us a little bit about Ben Sira and other books. Hagilyonim. The Gilyonim. What are the Gilyonim? What's a Gilyon in Hebrew? A Gilyon is like a sheet, like a Pasha sheet. The Gilyonim. Pasha says Shavua. The Nacham Libut says Gilyonim. It just it means paper. The Gilyonim in this context is the Avon Gilyon. What is the Avon Gilyon? The sinful Gilyon. The Evangelin. The New Testament, the sinful Gilion. All right. The, so the New Testament, the Minim, and the works of the heretics, a non do not render the hands impure. Why? Because they're not holy. They're not part of the Bible. Sifrei Ben Sira, the books of Ben Sira, and all books written then after. Do not render the hands impure. So notice that Tosefta says it's a chronological issue. Ben Sira is out, and anything written after that is certainly out. So, in order to be holy, you've you got to be an old book. I mean, it's got to be from a long time ago. If it's relatively new, it, it, it ain't holy. Okay, then... It doesn't mean there was only enough. It's just that people... Maybe because of these New Testament... Why did everything out? I don't think so. I think when it says... That implies you know, timing. It's an issue of timing. If you wanted to get in, you had to be much earlier. But it was before the common era anyway, so... Yes, yes. So there's no Christian... Uh, there's, right, so, so there is no Christian influence in, in the last two centuries of the, common, of the, of the pre-common era. It's just that Mikan Ve'elech, it's too late in the game. Okay, now let's go to a Mishnah. This is a Mishnah we did last time. At this point, the diaspora was quite extensive. Yes, sure. How did the work get out? How did what get out? What's good? What's not good? What's this? What's that? Well, well. Bear, bear in mind, Alan. Bear in mind that the diaspora, the, the diaspora, is not producing much Jewish literature. Other than the Book of Esther, we can't think of a book that was written in the Chutz Laaretz except for maybe Ezekiel because he lived in his. So, so the point is that. What kept them Jewish? What kept them Jewish? I mean, nowadays, all the communication we yeah. had, with all the extensive interplay of everything, yeah. were falling apart. In those days, there was hardly any real communication. Religion was taken a lot more seriously back then than it is now. Court professor had no other distractions. In Hebrew University, yeah. in, in, uh, in Egypt, they had synagogues. That's right. so what they did on Shabbat, was they learned the Torah. No so, yeah. So that's that the part well, of the custom was to have a divine Torah after, right before, well, after services, and then you went home and ate. The, po- the point is that houses of worship were the, main, the mainstay of Jewish life in the Chutz Laaretz, and that's where they learned. Today, our services are liturgy and ceremony. We don't actually learn anything in the public reading of the Torah or the davening. I mean, you're just mumbling the words. But back then, they really learned religion in the house of worship. Uh, that's, that's, that's how it worked. Okay, so the Mishnah in Sanhedrin, chapter 10, Mishnah 1, which we saw last time, is, discusses how all Israel has a portion of the world to come, and the following people have no portion in the world to come. And we have those who say there's no resurrection of the dead, and those who say there's no Torah from heaven. The Apikoros and Rabbi Akiva added, one who reads external works. And last time we mentioned how you can only have external works once you've made a decision that certain things are in and out. 
But you'll have to make a decision about what's in and out when you have a large body of literature. That early on, when there wasn't that much literature, these decisions didn't need to be made yet. But by the time of Akiva, 2nd century or 1st century BC, uh, of Common Era, so now decisions have been made, and if you get caught reading forbidden stuff, well, to hell with you. That's what he's saying. So, let's go to the Yerushalmi, because the Yerushalmi says something very difficult to understand. Rabbi Akiva, if you read outside works, Kigon, for example, what are these outside works? Ben Sira. If you read Ben Sira, you're damned to eternity. Ben La'ana. I don't know what Ben La'ana is, but it must have been a popular work back then among those who were hiding stuff you know, in their massive ta- uh, volumes of Talmud. Sifrei right. Hamirus, Homer, the books of Homer, and all the stuff that's written from this point forward. It's like you read a, a letter. Now, are you allowed to, allowed to read letters you get in the mail? Of course you're allowed to read letters you get in the mail, but it's, it's, not, it's not Bible, it's not a mitzvah, it's not holy, it's not anything. It's just reading a letter. Okay? My time, what's the reason for this? As Ecclesiastes says, My son, be careful. Don't make too many books. That other works were for the sake of higayon, for understanding, but not for yigiya, for... Uh, in, um, how shall I put it, uh, intensive study. Yigiyah means where you really put your heart and soul, your kishkas into it, to learn this, 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 this piece of literature. So you're allowed to read other books, but you're not allowed to put your heart and soul into it. Now, so you're saying you're allowed to? or you? Tr- you okay, so it depends where you put the comma. <laughs> That's the question, because if you read the, 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 the passage again, it says that the Svarm Chitzonim send you to eternal damnation. What are the Svarm Chitzonim? Ben Sira, Ben La'ana, Aval, but the books of Homer and other books that are written from this point forward are like Egeret. So according to the Yerushalmi, secular Greek not a literature is permissible so long as you don't get a PhD in it. You can get a bachelor's degree, but not a PhD. But as for uh, ben Sira and Ben La'ana, which were Jewish works, that if you even touch it, you're damned for eternity. Why should that be true? So, we'll have, eventually we'll come to a theory. But let's now look at the Gemara and Sanhedrin that tries to explain this a little further. Rabbi Akiva Omer, so Akiva says, don't read outside books. Tana b'sifrei minim, the works of the heretics. Rav Yosef Omer, Besefer ben Sira nami aser lamikri. So Rav Yosef says you're not allowed to read ben Sira. You're not allowed to. Okay, so Amalei Abaye. My time, Abaye asks his Rabbi Rav Yosef, why, why am I not allowed to? Meaning if you're going to put something on the, the list of interdicted books, you know, uh, you've got to give a reason for it. You know, when the, when the, uh, when the Catholic Church had its index, the infamous index, in the 1500s, so there was a reason why each book went on the index. Of course, then everyone rushed to buy it. So, if you're going to tell me it's because it says, Don't uh, rope a fish around the neck, but rather uh, put it in the oven and roast it. Uh, some kind of bizarre thing with eating, with, with pre- preparation of fish. So, imi pashtei, if you have a problem with the simple reading of the verse, it says so also in the Torah. Because the, the, the way that Ben Sira discusses uh, preparing fish, it's don't be wasteful even of the skin. You might have thought that the skin is worthless, but other, even the skin has like, you know, uh, uh, culinary significance or um, caloric value. So the, the Torah also says, You're not supposed to waste. So, the, so Ben Sira is just mimicking what it says in the Torah. So what's wrong with that? Imid Russia, and if you want to interpret it uh, allegorically, if, if you want to have an allegorical interpretation, that's also good, because what, how was that verse interpreted? That a person should have intercourse in the normal fashion and not have anal intercourse. And the rabbis were also of that opinion. So what's wrong with it with an allegorical interpretation? Rather, the reason why it was, it was taken out of circulation and was, it was said it was a bad book is because it says, um, that a, a daughter for her father is a bad thing, is, like a, ne- is a, neg- a net negative. Why? Uh, at night he can't sleep. 
because he's worried about her. When she's a minor, maybe she'll be seduced. When she's a, uh, an adolescent, maybe she'll commit harlotry. When she's a, uh, old, older, maybe she won't get married, she won't find the shidduch. Nise, so she gets married. Maybe she won't have any children. He's kina, if she got older, towards, uh, you know, later in life. Maybe she'll resort to witchcraft. So, uh, at every moment in life, the father is worried that his daughter is going to do something off, or something bad is going to happen to her. So on the whole, it's better off not to have daughters. So if you're going to tell me that, that, that that's you know, repugnant, and, and, and that's why it was kept out of the Bible, well, I'll tell you that's not repugnant. And the rabbi said the same thing. Where did the rabbi say the same thing? In the following passage. <speaking in Hebrew> Granted, the world can't function without male and female. But Ashrei Mishabon of Zacharim, praise be the one, or lucky is the one, whose children are male, or Lil Mishabon of Nekevos, and woe is the one whose offspring are female. Because the father of the girl has all these troubles, all these surahs. So yeah, we know we need men and women in the world, but for my family, I'd rather have men. You know, boys. You know, what, you, know what, yeah? you know what's repugnant about that statement? All the women you have to worry about, and they were bad. But the men? Hallelujah. Well, were there any bad boys then? Of course there were, and they killed them. Ben Sora and Mora, they chopped their heads off. So, uh, no, but, but the, point, the point of this whole discussion is that whenever you have something odd in Ben Sira that you might find objectionable, so Abai in turn says, yeah, but rabbinic Judaism says the same thing. So why would that be a reason for ousting it from Scripture? Um, okay, fine. So in the end, they come up with something that is in Ben Sira that is not uh, uh, paralleled by some statement in the rabbinic literature. And one of them is that if you have like a, a, a thin beard, you have to, uh, uh, if someone has a thin beard, you have to be wary of them. If they have like a double beard, they must be genius because they're always going like this like to their beard. <laughs> Rav, Stein, Rav Steinman has a double beard. They say he's very smart. So, but but, but the, the reason why so that's basically the conclusion that some of some of the stuff that he wrote was Mishigasin. and since since there's no rational or plausible explanation to some of the stuff that he wrote, it was kept out of the scripture because it's like an embarrassment. You can't okay. find in the whole Talmud some sort of the same type of thing where we'll read it. I can't quote, I don't know enough, but we'll read it and, and say, hey, come on. Okay, we, there, there is, there is, but, but um, so, it, so it goes. So, is there a, yeah, it's, not, it's a Talmud, not the Bible. So, not, not, but then, having decided that Ben Sira is out, because it may have some gibberish in it, uh, then the question is, well, how did Abaye know so much about a work that was supposedly off-limits? He's citing it left and right like he knows it cold. Well, answer is that the other Talmudic sages also knew it fairly well. And on occasion, the Talmud will even quote Ben Sira as though it were the Bible. Two, ca- two places in the Talmud where it is, it is referenced as though it were scripture. Okay? One of them is in Baba Kama. Baba Kama says the following, Menaha milsa de Amri inshi from where do we know the following the thing that people say? It's a popular adage. That uh, a bad palm is next to barren trees. Which is a, a, a fancy way of saying that a no-goodnik will typically be a neighbor of a no-goodnik. That uh, the Russia is next to the Russia. Well, Oil Russia, Oil Shcheno is that the Shcheno might be a nice guy, but he's going to be negatively influenced by having a, a, a bad neighbor. Whereas this statement is that if you have a scoundrel here, most likely his neighbor is also a scoundrel. Birds a yeah, birds of a feather. So, where do we find this? Amarle, Davar ze Kasuv Torah, Shanoi Banavim, Umeshulash Ba. Ketuvim. It's in the Torah, it's repeated in the Nevi'im, and it's repeated a third time in the Ketuvim. V'tanan b'masnisin, it's found in the Mishnah. V'tanina b'brisa, and it's even found in the Brisa. So in every layer of official Judaism, we have some kind of a statement that agrees with this popular adage. Where, so let's go, let's go to the, the, go to the quotations. Batorah, Dichtiv, where does it say in the Torah that if uh, the, the bad go next to the bad? Vayelach Esav El Yishmael. 
So Esav went to Yishmael. But why did Esav go to Yishmael? To marry Yishmael's daughter when he was 40, because he wanted to follow his daddy's footsteps in getting married at 40. Okay. So, Shanoi Benavim, it's repeated in the Prophets, Vayitlachtu el Yiftach, Anashim Reikim Vayiyumo, that Yiftach, Jephthah, he associated himself with Anashim Reikim. What does that mean? Empty people. Low lives, like a waste of a human life. Uh, it's a horrible expression, but it's, uh, it's right there in the, in the Bible. Umeshulash Baketuvim, and we find it again in the Ketuvim, Kol Of Lemino, birds of a feather. There you go, Kol Of Lemino. Except that where is Kol Of Lemino? It's in Ben Sirah, chapter 13. And yet, it's referred to as Meshulash Baketuvim. I was expecting from something from Proverbs, from Psalms, from Ecclesiastes, but no, it's from Ben Sira. Okay? And then, there's a, there's a citation from the Mishnah, and a citation from the Brisa. So, the, in, in, in the footnotes in the New Art School, of course, they, have to, have, have, they struggle with this. How could it be that they're referring to Ben Sira as, as Ketuvim? And they all have all sorts of theories in the Achronim. How, no, they ne- the Talmud never meant to say that, that, that Ben Sira was actually in the Bible. It's just that in those years, there wasn't that much that was written, so they had to quote something, they had to quote Ben Sira. All sorts of, you know, unimpr- tortured dochet terets that they give to explain why the Gemara refers to Ben Sira as Ketuvim. I'm not going to offer an answer myself just to say that it, it says it, it's there. Okay, another example is in Erevin 65a. Amar of Chiyabar of Ashi, Amar Rav, Kol she'en datum yusheves alav al yuspalil. If your mind is unsettled for whatever reason, don't daven. Don't daven. That you need to have clarity of mind in order to pray. It's a reasonable statement. And how can we have so many minyanim? All right, so the Rambam would be against it. He'd say that people should take a break from davening every now and then if they really can't focus. But Ali, so the Gemara says. They do. That's called talking in short. <laughs> <laughs> so Gemara says Mishum Shen And that's the Rambam. How, how do we know that this is true, that you shouldn't pray if your mind is unsettled? Mishum Shenamar, and whenever you have the words Mishum Shenamar, what's the next thing that they do? They quote a verse from the Bible. Shenamar. Okay. Batsar al yore. In a time of trouble, do not render decisions. So, what book of the Bible is that from? Bensira. It's not. No. Okay, so Bensira. Oh. So, well, but. What if what if you're a good a good rabbi who's living in the year in the year you know ten seventy five in France and you don't know from Ben Sira but you know the Bible pretty well so and you see this 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 passage in the Talmud and you're scratching your head saying what's going on here so that's exactly Rashi let's read the Rashi it's a very telling Rashi Badakti achar hamikra hazeh veino bechoaktuvim v'shema ben v'sefer ben Sirahu let's parse the language of Rashi carefully. I investigated, I searched for this passage of scripture. And it's not found in any of the writings, of, this, of our official sacred writings. The Shema, and maybe it's in the book of Ben Sira. Now we know in fact it is in Ben Sira, so Rashi guessed correctly. But the point is, what do we see about Rashi? He, ha- he was humble enough to acknowledge that he doesn't know the whole Bible by heart. That he had to actually bother looking, flipping through his uh, his, his book, his, his Tanakh, to see is this is this line anywhere? I don't think it is, but let me check every page to see if it's there. And when he flipped through the whole book, he found it wasn't there. And then he says, "Well, maybe it's Ben Sira, because he doesn't read Ben Sira since it's not our our official canonical literature. He doesn't really know it, but he knows about it, and he figures maybe this is it. And he guessed correctly." So that's the, that's the state of affairs in 11th century Europe concerning how the rabbis knew or didn't know the substance of Ben Sira. Okay. Now, there are other times when the Talmud openly acknowledges that what it's citing is Ben Sira. So, for example, in Chagiga, Yud Gimel Now, Chagiga, for those of you who learned Chagiga, the middle of the tractate discusses what? Okay, esoteric knowledge. Uh, the Maaseh Merkava. The, uh, the chariots and the Maasebereshit, the beginnings of the earth, cosmogony and cosmology, whatever, all those fancy words. What, what came before, what comes after, what's above, what's below. All the questions you're not supposed to ask because we don't really have good answers for them. So the Mishnah says don't ask them. 
but what are you allowed to discuss? So, ad kan yesh up to this point and no further in, in matters of speculation about the great weighty issues of the world, you're allowed to speak. But beyond this point, whatever that point is, you have no permission to speak. So there's no, there's no absolute freedom of inquiry in Judaism, at least according to the Talmud. Shekain katu b'sefer ben Sira, because so it says in the book of Ecclesiasticus in ben Sira, b'muflamimcha al tidrosh, what is beyond your level, don't expound, u'v'mechusamimcha al tachkor, what is concealed from you, do not research. So ben Sira said, there are limits to what you are allowed to, to say, and there are limits to your investigation and your intellectual search. Okay, so he doesn't get it from anywhere in the Tanakh. He's saying it as a, 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 a pithy statement of wisdom. And the, and the Talmud agrees with it. Whether we agree with it or not is, 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 is beyond, beyond the issue here. The point is simply that Ben Sira makes a statement, a very important statement about intellectual inquiry, and the Talmud says, yeah, we agree with it. And they cite Ben Sira by name, despite it being an external work. Okay, another example... Are they signing a work or the individual? Because they're talking Ravashi, Abaye... The Shekane Katuv Besefer Ben Sira. Okay. Besefer. Okay. Then we go to Yevamo 63, 63b. Uh, uh, to Besefer Ben Sira, it also says in the book of Ben Sira, Isha Tova Matana Tova Labala. A good woman is a good present for her husband. So here, Ben Sira said not nice things about a father having a daughter, but he said wonderful things about a wife, like an Aisha Shai, like a read out of Proverbs. Okay. Um, Can you repeat that again? Isha tova matana tova ba'ala. You translate it. Isha tova matana tova ba'ala. A good woman is a good present for her husband. How about that? I could see why Tell it to Helene. I see that as a, uh, as a negative on women. Well, yes, listen, in a patriarchal society, uh, granted, it's stated in a way that, that treats the woman as a, a movable commodity. Yeah. I understand that. But that's the, that, was the, that, 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 that was the nature of the society of the time. Yeah. But the point is, it's a high-quality commodity. All right. Now, um, one last point about Ben Sira. This is in Kohelet Rabbah, in, a, in, a, in a Medrash. Quoting from the, the second to last line of the book, beyond this, my son, I give you warning, too many books is not a good thing. If your library in your house has more than 24 books, and they mean the official 24 books of the, of the biblical canon, what's mehuma? Chaos, uncertainty, you know, uh, mayhem is, is entering your home. That basically, if you want to keep uh, your family on the straight and narrow religious path and not have them go astray and become uh, free thinkers and Freemasons, what, 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 do you, what do you do? You keep the library very limited just to the official books of the Bible. Okay? Well, there was no Gemara at that time. Kegon, Sefer Ben Sira, Sefer Ben Tigla, Ben Sira and Ben Tigla, I don't even know what Ben Tigla is, Velahag Harbei Giat Basar, Lahagot Nitnu, then it, it sort of backtracks and says that these other books were given lahagot to, uh, to read them, you know, peruse them, but not ligiat basar, to delve into them so thoroughly as to devote your life to them. So you shouldn't uh, be studying the literature of the heathens, or for that matter, the literature of our own people post biblical era. Does this <coughs> tell us that people, and the average person may have had a library of the, okay, so the so the the liter, the literate among among society did have libraries, and I suspect that they had things beyond the books of the Bible. Otherwise, they otherwise, otherwise the, the the Talmudic writings wouldn't be posturing about how uh, how terrible it is. It must be people had it. I mean, if you read Milton Steinberg's as a driven leaf, which granted it's fiction. But it's, a, it's a, an important work of fiction that I think reasonably depicts what life was like in the days of Lisha Ben Abuya. Talks about how people had scrolls, and you know, there was the big scroll, the little scroll that you hid underneath it because no, no one should know you had it, and then he put it in his coat, and it fell out, and he got in trouble. Uh, that story probably is a, is a, is a, is a, is a, is a fictional tale. 
but people had books that, you know, scrolls that were of dubious uh, philosophical and theological standing. Okay, now let's go to uh, the Rambam who clarifies the whole matter. Yeah. From this time up to Josephus, generally yeah. the Jewish population never had any history books. No. They had, they had no written history. Well, there's the Deuteronomical history of Sefer Devarim through Malachim Beis, which, you know, someone wrote it sometime right after the, the, the first temple period. But it wasn't really a, a practice to write history. No. It, no. Could it be this mentality had discouraged the writing of history because it would be outside of the canon? That's a very interesting point. I never thought of that. Um, Maybe. Can you reprise your All right, so the, his point was that, that, that maybe the, 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 the fact that Jews until Josephus did not write their history was the result of the, the, the would-be authors knowing that their works are not going to be entered into some kind of sacred canon and therefore there was no incentive to write it. Well, the, the notion that you weren't allowed to read it is a, is a Tanaitic thing where Abikiva is going to put you in, in Gehenim forever. That, I imagine, came late in the game, if at all, or that was just his opinion. So I don't think they were worried about uh, you know, violating some kind of religious rule so much as it wasn't going to be accepted in the official library of Judaism, therefore what's the point? That may be... That may explain something. And also would explain why Josephus's primary audience was the heathen audience, not the Jewish audience. On the on the premise that I'm not writing a Jewish work since you can't write Jewish works that are going to be officially adopted. I mean, listen, other, other, there were plenty of other books that were written that are now in the Apocrypha and Pseudepigrapha that are not in the Jewish Bible, but those were never book, works of history. Those were works of like apocalyptic, you know, uh, visions. Uh, not uh, this is what happened 30 years ago or, th- or 330 years ago. It's what no, I think is going to happen when the Messiah comes or when God reveals himself. Okay. Now the, la- the last word on this subject is that of the Rambam. The Rambam in the Laws of, of, of Idolatry says the following, Sfarim Rabim, Hebrew of De'avodat Kochavim. The heathens wrote many works. Ba'avodata, uh, concerning their, the worship of their gods. Heach ikavurata, umama semishpatea. Well, how do you worship the God? What are the laws? What are the, the statutes? You know, the Kashulchan Aruch for Avodazaro. Tsivano Akarishborakulush Likros Bosanasfarim. Klal. God commands us not to read those books at all. Vlona Harherabah, Vlobadavarmidvareha. Not to uh, even think about them or any of the, uh, the cognate matters. So, what has the Rambam banned? So he's banning only pagan religious works, in other words, Bibles and Shulchan Aruchs of the of the Goyim, where you're dealing with religion. So the New Testament, obviously. So the New Testament, but what is he not banning? Homer, the Iliad, the Iliad and the Odyssey, whatever, any any work of literature that is to be enjoyed as literature that isn't a, a, a manual or a devotional in some other religion. And for that matter, mathematical tracts and philosophical tracts that don't delve too much into to God, all this stuff is permitted. So, Sfarim Chitzonim, in the more general sense of the word, are perfectly kosher. What's not allowed? Only those things that are really uh, pagan in nature. So it's a, a, it's, a, it's a soft point of view, not at anywhere near that which Akiva said in the Mishnah and Sanhedrin, or as the way the Talmud interpreted Akiva. Okay. That's true. That's true. So, in the few minutes we have left, let's deal with the non-legomena, those books of the Bible that's, that purportedly had some kind of problem uh, uh, remaining in the canon, that in the Tanaitic period, the, in the era of ratification, some, some question arose about their status. Before we even read the passages in the rabbinic literature, let me just first say that this is only in rabbinic literature. And that if you go to the, the outside sources, it's pretty clear that all these books were definitely in and were not coming out. Now, the, the, the books are, the, there are five books in question. Esther, Ezekiel, Song of Songs, Proverbs, and Ecclesiastes. Why each one of those five? So, let's start with, the, with Ezekiel. I, I mentioned that in the past. Um, there are many problems with Ezekiel in terms of contradictions between that and the Torah. 
and that Hanania ben Chizkia ben Garon went up into the attic for, for a year with 300 barrels of oil, and he spent uh, 12 months figuring out the resolution to these various difficulties about sacrifices on the holidays and sacrifices on Rosh Chodesh Nisan, and a Kohen can't marry a, a widow, and a Kohen has to marry a virgin girl. All these things that in Ezekiel that are against the Torah, that a Kohen cannot eat treif, whereas a regular Jew could eat treif. Right, so the, all these problems have solutions that are either compelling or not so compelling, but the point is, at the end of the day, Ezekiel was left in. Ezekiel was never going to be taken out, of course, because it's in the Nevi'im, which was sealed shut much earlier. Only something in the Ketuvim might possibly have been ousted because of whatever problems the rabbis had with it. So Yechezkel, there, there was a potential for a problem, but it was resolved. Okay. Let's go to Esther, which is the most problematic of them all, which we've discussed at length in the past when we did Purim. So what's wrong with Esther? Doesn't mention God's name. Okay, uh, the, the heroine marries a Shagitz. Uh, there, there's viola- it's seeming violation of all sorts of religious laws. There's no affirmative observance of, of religious laws. In many, many ways, it's problematic. It doesn't sound very Jewish. So what did the rabbis do in the Midrash? They Jewified it. They made it more Jewish by saying that Esther kept kosher, she kept Shabbos, that's Vaishnav and Aratea, and that uh, they inject a lot of davening. The Septuagint has, has uh, actual prayers in the name of God. The Greek version of Esther has, has additions to the book of Esther. We solved all those problems, but it took time to solve those problems. How did they, how did they convert the, uh, the king? They, that, that they never did. That they never did. That's so. That's so. That far they never went, but all right. But uh, until these problems were worked out, there were those who said that Esther does not render the hands impure, and there were those even in the Amoraic period who said that Esther doesn't have to be treated with reverence. You could actually touch the scroll. That you don't have to have a mitpachat, a, a, a mantle covering the scroll. You could actually have hand uh, to, to, to parchment contact. Um, we have that yes, we do. But the point is that. Uh, in the Gemara, the, the, the younger Amorayim who made the suggestion that you could treat Esther irreverently were then told, you be quiet, because you're, you're wrong. Um, we have to treat it with reverence. Now, the, 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 the important uh, examples that we have to deal with are Kohelet, Mishlei, and Shir Hashirim. So, um, in Avost Rabbi Nassim, we have the following line. Barishona Hayu Amrim, early on they said, now whenever you have the word Barishona, when, when was Barishona? In the beginning. When is the beginning? I don't know, but it's earlier than now. So it's Barishona, some time ago, in the beginning. Hayu Amrim, they used to say, Mishtei V'shirashir Mekohel Genuzim Hayu, that Proverbs, Song of Songs and Ecclesiastes should be put into the Geniza, into the, uh, the archives, and not used for public consumption. Shehem Omrim Mishalos, because they're just parables of a secular variety, and they're not from the holy writings. And in fact, they were put into the, into the Geniza, until the men of the Great Assembly came and explained them. So this is pretty serious stuff here, that books of the Bible that we have today, that we think are holy, were at a time kicked out and only brought back when the men of the, the Great Assembly were able to explicate them properly. Now, of course, the problem with this from a historical point of view is twofold. Number one, of course, the, the scholars deny that there ever was a men of a Great Assembly, that this is like sort of a fictional enterprise uh, made up by the rabbinic literature. But even if there was like a, like a, a, like a proto-Sanhedrin, which we call the Great Assembly, the problem, of course, is that Mishle, Shir, Shim, and Kohelet, although they're credited to Shlomo HaMelech, are, according to the, the critical scholars, written much, much later, possibly even post-dating when the Great Assembly supposedly existed. So, you could argue that while, you know, the Avastur Rabbi Nassim makes this claim, that's not how it happened. That what really happened was, people in the later Amoraic period had problems with Kohelet, Mishle, and Shirashirim, and they said, speculating about what might have been in the past, you know, in the early time, they would have kicked this out of the Bible. But because they were able to make uh, 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 explanations, perushim and chidushim, that, that do away with the difficulties, they brought it back in. I don't think it was ever out. But you could see why a later rabbinic author speculates how it might have been out earlier had it existed. Because, I mean, there are, pro- there are problematic passages. Right. Okay, so... It's hard to understand if something is out, it should have been forgotten. 
Right. Obviously, it was right. So there's something red. illogical about this whole thing. If it was out, it would have been. It would have remained out. We never would have known about it, uh, which leads me to believe that it never was out. Okay. Um, uh, you have a passage in Gemara Shabbos. Amar Rav Yehuda Bered Rav Shmuel, Bikshu Chachamim Ligno Sefer Kohelet. The rabbis wanted to uh, eliminate Kohelet, but they should devar Sotrin Zed Zed because its words contradict each other. Meaning there are passages that are a blatant contradiction with other ones in the same book. You know, it's good to laugh, it's good to cry, it's good to be in the house of mourning, it's good to be in the house of feasting. Uh, make up your mind already. Come on. So Mipnei Malo Genazuhu. Why did they not kick it out? Because the beginning is religious and the end is religious. If you look at the first two lines of, of Kohelet, it, it sounds like a good, good moralistic, pious literature. And read the last line about uh, fear God, it sounds very good and religious. So since most people, they read the first page of the book and the last page of the book and they skip the middle and they, and they pretend like they read it and they don't tell the teacher, you know, and they read the cliff notes. So... If the beginning and the end is good, it's good. Leave it in. All right. Uh, another line in, in Vayikra Rabbah, in, in the Midrash, about, uh, about Kohelet. Amr Shmuel Barnachmani, Bikshulig no Sefer Kohelet. They wanted to kick it out of the Bible. Because, uh, because some things in Ecclesiastes border on heresy. I mean, there are certain lines in Ecclesiastes that don't really mesh well with, with rabbinic thinking, with, traditional, with conventional Judaism. So Amru It says in Ecclesiastes, what benefit is there man in all his toil in this world? So you might have thought that means that even in the toil of Torah, Torah, there's no Yitaron, there's no benefit. So therefore they concluded, under the sun there's no benefit, but for things that are above the sun, like Torah, there is benefit. Alright, so you can, you can parse the language and interpret it nicely so that it's not minus, it's not heresy. So they were able to save Ecclesiastes that way. Now the last source for tonight is a Mishnah Yadaim. Okay, Mishnah says like this, Kisve HaKodesh Metamenes Yadaim, the holy writings render the hands impure, including Ecclesiastes and Song of Songs. Rabbi Yehuda says there was a debate about Ecclesiastes. Some said yes and some said no. Rabbi Yehuda Omer, Ecclesiastes definitely does not render the hands impure. And Shirashirim, Song of Songs, there was a debate. Rabbi Shimon Omer, that Ecclesiastes was from the leniencies of Beit Shammai, meaning he held, did not render the hands impure because it was out. And from the Chumrah of Beis Hills as it's in. Shimon ben Azai says, I received Mipi Ayin Zakin on the day that they made Elazar ben Azariah the head of the yeshiva, and on that day they decided, Shirashirim Kohelet are in. And Rabbi Kiva says, Chas Vishalom, no one ever said Shirashirim was out. Rather, it's definitely in. And the day that it was given to Israel is like the day, that, uh, the most holy of, the, of all the days. Because Shir Hashirim is Kodesh Kadashim. And what did they argue? They only argued about Kohelet. But not about um, Shir Hashirim. So Akiva is the defender of Song of Songs, of Canticles. Which is ironic because Akiva was very tough on sexual matters. If you remember, and we discussed this a few years back, the left-wing Pharisees gave very stiff punishment a very, very harsh, harsh punishment for any violation of the Arayos. Whereas the, the Shamaites were much uh, more lenient on the Arayos in sexual matters for sociological reasons. Because in the, in the urban environment, you can get a, you can, a woman could live on her own. So if, she was, if she'd be tempted to sin, therefore the urbanites and the left-wingers had to crack down hard. Whereas the, in, the, in the right-wing environment of the plantation, a woman couldn't survive without being fed. She would die of starvation. So therefore she had no incentive to cheat on her husband. So therefore they were softer on, on the punishment. Um, but the, the point here is that Shira Shirim is an erotic poem. And yet, Akiva, the tough guy, when it comes to all matters of Arias, says it's in the Bible, no one ever doubted it, and it's the holiest book there ever was. Now that's a little bit overkill, but it goes to show you the extent to which he had to fight, like tooth and nail, to keep it in the Bible, because there were those who wanted to kick it out. Why they want to kick it out? Maybe it's an erotic poem. It's, uh, they didn't feel like him that it was of, of a spiritual religious nature. Now, why did I say earlier on, and this will close, that the ratification of the, of the canon was between the years 90 and 110, if the admission process was between 160 and 105, 
So the ratification is in the period of Yavne, and they said on the day when Allah ibn Azayah was made the Nasi, the head, of the, the head of the yeshiva, that's when they made decisions. When was he made the head of the yeshiva? When Gamliel was shown the door. Why was Gamliel shown the door? Because he was too t- nasty to, to, to Rabbi Yeshua and the others. He was, t- he was too tough. They kicked him out. When did this happen? Sometime between 90 and 110. Thereabouts, probably in the mid, mid to late 90s was when Gamliel was deposed. So this is a time of the ratification of the earlier decisions about what is in the Bible. In the end, all the non-legomena are in. So for all the discussion that this should have been out, this should have been out, they're all in. And what's actually out? The stuff that was never in in the first place. The apocryphal writings. We'll stop here.